Welcome to Seek Justice, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the nuances of criminal justice. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning, Eric. How are you? Good. So in this project, I would like to learn about criminal justice from you. Um, so, I mean, let's start off with definitions. I mean, what is, what is criminal justice? What does it mean? Well, you know, taking it back to its basic tenet, justice is about making things right again. Okay. So, you know, in a, in a, in a biblical sense, you know, that, that, that meant trying to right the wrong, punish the person, uh, and as time developed, we ended up creating four different types of things that we want to get out of the justice system. We wanted to tear individuals from committing crime. Uh, by treating them a certain way, punishing them generally. Mm-hmm. We want to use them as an example uh, so other people won't do a general deterrence. Right. We want to uh, make things right for the victim, be that restoration or um, rest, including rest, restitution, mm-hmm. meaning they get, they get their goods back, their money back. Um, and we want to do that kind of in a fair and, and just way. Um, and then it's been politicized. I'll, I'll tell you one other thing about the definition and then and then stop for a moment, which is that it's really a misnomer that there's a criminal justice system per se. Okay. Really what there is is a bunch of small justice agencies that have a part in the criminal justice process. Okay. And if they bump up against each other, like police in the jails, meaning law enforcement uh, system connects to the jail system because when they arrest people, they got to lock them up somewhere and then the court takes over and the police have something to say about that and they testify, et cetera. So those two parts of the so-called justice system are coordinating at least some of their work. But then when you move up the justice system continuum beyond the courts and move into probation and parole and prisons, Law enforcement has a lot less to do with that because they're not engaged in the operational aspects of that work, although there's some exceptions. But the, in order for it to be a true system, somebody would have to be in charge. There have to be a fairly well-recognized set of protocols or rules um, across the system, and that just isn't there. And so we call it a justice system, but really what we mean is a justice process. Mm-hmm. Uh, that tie a bunch of smaller systems together. So there's a lot to unpack there. But. Uh, yeah. So the to, to recap, the 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 things that we want out of criminal justice is some punishment for general deterrence and uh, helping the victim. And we do that through this this collection of systems that are our mechanism of trying to achieve justice. Right. It, including though the specific individual deterrence, meaning I want to convince you not to do this again. And and by the way, when I do that, others see that and then that becomes general deterrence. Right. Uh, you know, and so um, the system, you know, is built really in, in one sense to try to reduce crime. You know, we, we, we don't want people to, to do wrongs to others. And so we Try a bunch of different things to do that, but ah, so it's the, so it's it's both to achieve justice, but also to reduce crime. Yeah, future crime. Right. Yeah, by individuals or by you know by the general population. Um, but we don't do that very well, you know. And, and the the numbers, you know, kind of tell the story. I mean, and I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. We can certainly you know get them and, and post them. But 
you've 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 only got a certain relatively small number of crimes that are solved in the first place. Mm-hmm. So uh, when they are solved and a perpetrator is is captured, you already have a small percentage of the people that are causing the problem. And of course, the smarter the criminal, the less likely it is to catch the person. And so we end up catching a lot of people that may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer. Right. Uh, and uh, probably to a much larger extent, I know this is true, we capture those that have a higher degree of substance abuse, mental illness, uh, you know, again, not perhaps the smartest people in the world, uh, whereas the people that are a little bit more planful, more sophisticated, uh, think things through, they're not just reacting to a situation and, oh, I want to steal that, so I steal it, mm-hmm. but they plan things. Those are the folks that, you know, tend not to get caught. If you figured in your own, you know, knowing yourself, if you set forth to steal something and you kind of planned it out, uh, you'd probably have a lot less likelihood of being caught than somebody who didn't take that approach who wasn't as intelligent as you. Right. And, you know, you know and I'm, I'm, bro- I'm painting this with a broad brush, but you, you get the general idea. But to take the to take the. Yeah, it's the just point, a, a generalization. You're not saying that all convicts right. are idiots. That's right, right. Right. You know, I mean, the guy who, you know, robs a bank and signs the bank the note to the banker. I mean, you've heard right. these stories, you know. Right, right, right. Uh, whatever, but you know, those are, they make the news because they're exceptions. Um, but then when you do capture this group, then there's only a certain percentage of them that are convicted and you can check in any uh, jurisdiction what the conviction rate is. And then of those that are convicted, only a small percentage of them are sentenced to prison okay. uh, or jail. So the judge has a choice to, to put them on their own recognizance and find them, put them in jail, which is a local lockup for a short period of time, put them on probation which is a supervision system prior to any imprisonment, put them in a longer term prison situation, et cetera. And when you look at the numbers, the majority of persons do not go to prison. And you could check that by looking at a jurisdiction's uh, imprisonment rate. And so then you end up with maybe all things considered, and you know, don't quote me you know, too tightly on these numbers, maybe out of every 100 crimes, right. there's only one person who ends up going to prison for it. So while you may be able to have a specific deterrence on that individual, certainly while that individual is locked up, he's not going to be committing crimes in society, although he very well might be committing crimes behind bars. Um, that's only one person out of 100 crimes committed. And people who are breaking the law know these facts. Mm-hmm. So the idea of general deterrence is also uh, affected just by the sheer numbers of it. And so the correlation between imprisonment in a state prison system and crime reduction is very difficult to prove. There's a, a debate about this and there's evidence on both sides of it, you know, that, that researchers will use to prove their particular point. Right. Uh, but you could see why it would be a stretch to think that, you know, imprisonment in the state prison system uh, here uh, has much impact at all on the overall crime rate. So there are a lot of misnomers about the system, a lot of myths. And we spend you know, general uh, 60%, 70% of all our tax money in the states is spent on justice issues, whether it's police or courts or whatever. Prisons are very expensive, et cetera. And so politicians who want to get elected talk about the justice system and they want to be tough on crime. Mm-hmm. And that then puts them in a position to want to spend more money on doing the things we already do, which, again, don't have much of a correlation. Right. And there's a lot of known things you can do to actually reduce crime that are longer term. That, that don't fit in a soundbite. Right. So, yeah, so if, okay, so give me an example of uh, something that 
does work better than locking someone up. Well, so when you look at, you know, long, long-term data, uh, you see correlations between adult criminal activity and the way that children are brought up and uh, their environment. Uh, people are not born, for the most part, uh, with criminogenic tendencies, meaning uh, characteristics that drive them or propel them to committing crime. They learn those behaviors. And, and some would say that with you know sociopaths or psychopaths that um, who uh, end up committing crime, there is you know kind of genetic basis for some of those things. But for the general uh, approach, it's stuff that you learn. So it's not surprising that if you're in a in a in a economically uh, deprived family environment, you've only got uh, one parent. Perhaps the father isn't part of the household. You don't have access to services and education at a young age, etc. Um, then you're already in a trajectory that will lead you to perhaps poor school attendance and poor educational development that in turn could lead to uh, uh, less uh, time in schools and uh, an education that isn't uh, as productive. Mm -hmm. That in turn could lead to uh, school failure, which in turn can lead to juvenile delinquency. And so thinking of all that, it's not surprising that some data shows that you want to reduce crime, uh, help single mothers with health care for their children. Right. And, uh, you know, improve the justice, improve the educational system for those people that, you know, because of their statistical characteristics, have got a propensity to end up as adults in the in the justice system. The point the point here is that some some justice systems who are trying to predict the number of prison beds that they need in the future will use uh, educational attainment scores for third and fourth graders to help them project far in advance. Wow, so, and that, that's strongly yeah. correlated. Yeah, yeah, and so, but but the problem is, is that you know, politicians. You if you're in a in a state uh, house of representatives, you're only elected for two years at a time. You literally have to start running for re-election and raising money for re-election the first day you're seated. Mm -hmm. That cycle of election is two years. If you're in the Senate, most states it's four years. You know, governors are four years, two terms generally. These types of long-term solutions that can show impact over time aren't all that interesting to politicians. Right. They're more interesting to statesmen or statespeople sure. and yeah, maybe yeah. a little bit more PC about it, but they're not going to see the results of that. So it's much easier for them to say, well, I'm going to be tough. I've worked with uh, political leaders uh, uh, here in Michigan, uh, former Governor Jennifer Granholm. I worked on her campaign and she was a very early proponent and may have been the earliest politician that used the phrase, I want to be tough on crime, but I want to be smart on crime. Nice. Meaning you use what the research tells you and the evidence about how you need to assess the likelihood of future criminality and danger and risk and use that to drive the level of resource that you apply in the justice system to somebody. So you don't take short term, uh, you know, relatively uh, less risky, less harmful individuals and treat them the same in the justice system as you treat people that are guilty of violent offenses. And there's a lot of science to it. So uh, we've known this for 20 years, and yet it doesn't stop the politicians from being tough on crime. Tough, 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 and stupid. Yeah, yeah. It it um, it's almost one of these things like I don't know, like the the FBI or the CIA or something that is that where you or the or the military where you want people that aren't worried about getting elected uh, and staying and staying elected to be there for a whole career to spend your 
so that you don't so that you don't get caught up in the rhetoric of uh, yeah of politics. Well, good 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 point. And, and in fact, when you consider then the idea that uh, the justice system is a bunch of moving parts, right. smaller subsystems, if you will, then you have uh, chiefs of police and you have heads of prison systems and heads of parole system, right. uh, et cetera, sheriffs, et cetera, some of which are elected officials. Sheriffs are usually elected. Judges are elected. And so the the the, the connection, the tight at the hip, if you will, between the political system and the justice system puts it in harm's way. But at the same time, there are career professionals, people that come up through the ranks of law enforcement who end up being chiefs of police who are not elected, but who are appointed by politicians and can live and die by those kind of appointments. But you often see remarkable men and women who are running police departments and remarkable people that are running corrections departments, and they can become and often are a voice of reason to, uh, 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 you know, to, to press up against and counterbalance some some of the more political rhetoric. However, still, the still, are, it's the, the people that are that are setting your budget are the elected legislators. So, well, there, there's that. But let, let me let me offer that's more a secondary or even a, a third level consideration. The first level consideration is that those people that are career professionals are usually not involved in the campaigns. And when politicians are running for office is when they make their promises. Right. And then once they make their promises, the stupid shit that they say while they're running for office about being tough on crime and they want people to be in prison longer when there's very little correlation between the length of imprisonment and, you know, uh, reduction of criminal activity. I mean, who's going to argue that that doing, you know, seven years in a prison system is much more effective than doing five years in a prison system, other than the fact that people will argue, well, that two years that that individual is locked up and not committing crime is worth it. Well, what does that cost? And yeah. really, if you spent if it's forty five dollars a day or 50 bucks a day to keep somebody locked up in prison, you multiply that multiply that by three hundred and sixty five days and then multiply that by two or three years. Look at that cost per person. Multiply that by 100 people. Get that large dollar figure and then weigh that spending the money that way as opposed to spending it for better law enforcement, better investigative capabilities, mm-hmm. better uh, efforts to identify juveniles at a younger age before they. Uh, you know, uh, graduate, if you will, into the adult system. And you'll see time and time again that the research is very clear. Money spent is better spent in earlier prevention. And yet you're back to this cycle of politicians making promises. So then the politician says, "Okay, I've been elected. And, uh, you know, you can look at our, our president of the United States who who said, you know, holy shit, I've been elected president. Right now, what do I do? He never expected to win. I'm sure of that. And whether you expect to win or not, when you're running a campaign, particularly for a statewide office like governor, I've been involved in governor uh, campaigns. um, They don't spend very much time being prepared to actually run the government. In fact, they may be very good politicians, but perhaps not very good managers. Right. When you've got a a different set of skills to to get elected than than to govern. And and their ability to delegate and to. Which is which is a real shame about the whole Democratic system is that. Oftentimes, there's not a lot of overlap between the governing versus the uh, getting elected skill set. And we, you know, and we do we do take time uh, in the states to um, dig deeper into their policy positions and what they'll do. There's always, you know, interviews and debates and and, uh, lots of media coverage that gets into the detail. But the there's that. But more than that, which drives elections is negative campaigning, which is amazingly effective. And then the, 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 you know, kind of the tough campaigning, which is also effective. And so it's certainly out of balance. Right. Uh, and 
that's they politicians do not spend their money developing deep issue briefs on how they're going to run the Department of Corrections or right. the Department of Commerce. They spend their money on attack ads, right, right. which in spite of, of how many of them say, God, I hate that. Right. Anybody they who they hire is going to say, well, yeah, sorry, but you better do it. And you know the story of, of you know John McCain, who I consider an American hero and, and, and a maverick politician in his own right. He, too, ended up succumbing to the need for negative politics, right. and he hated it. And yep. there's a lot of, of stories about that. So it's um, you can't separate the so-called justice system from the political world. And it's one of the reasons that it is so incredibly ineffective and so incredibly uh, costly. Um, and it's it's where I spend a lot of my time trying to trying to figure that out with people. Would it would it help if we educated? I mean, would it help if we educated the population to what the best methods are? So. I mean, I guess the that's sure. sort of the, the liberal dream of the educated voter making sound decisions. Whereas, all all you really need is a is a is a candidate to to use the fear and crime card, and people, we we go back to you know our like it's, it's easy to scare people with you know, yeah. For example, well, and, Trump's uh, you know Mexican rapist uh, oh, sure. narrative. Sure, and 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 frankly, you know, again, there's actually plenty of that going on. Right. And you have like the League of Women Voters and you have, you know, in the, in the criminal justice field, you have criminal justice associations of district attorneys and public defenders and judicial associations. And you have advocate associations and you have families of prisoners and right. formerly incarcerated persons associations. And they spend a good deal of time doing that and educating the voter. But at the end of the day, you know, the, the, the people that can advise campaigns will say, well, that's good and do that. Sure. Right. And spend, you know, spend a dime of every dollar on that and then spend 90% scaring the hell out of people because at the end of the day, That's what the uneducated see. voter yeah. who you're trying to get to come to the poll right. and vote is not going to be swayed by so much the thoughtful stuff, but it's going to be swayed by saying, I'm scared of what's happening. I need to get off my ass and go vote. Right. When you consider the, the incredible number of people in this country that don't vote, particularly young people right. who are, uh, in, 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 you know, depending on the characteristics that you're looking in your data, are educated and more susceptible to uh, education uh, of the issues. Right. How to get them motivated uh, is driven to a large extent, you know, by leadership that motivates them. That's why uh, Bernie Sanders, for example, was was very very successful. A little bit uh, too late, you know, in the 2016 election to actually uh, win the nomination. And he, I think, he was running initially and said, "Holy cow, I, I'm not just running to." To, to, to bring in my, my, my far left socialist message here, I'm actually gaining enough popularity I could win by the time he realized that it was almost too late. Right. Um, but he attracted people who, and, and, and now in this 2020 election cycle, continues to attract people who are younger, more thoughtful, more educated, and uh, who will contribute small amounts of money. Mm -hmm. Famously, recently, you know, average of $27 you know, per person. He raised more money in 24 hours, I think, than any politician has. I won't what's your number, but I think it's, you know, $6 million in this first 24 hours. That is uh, exciting because he is, uh, you know, an more of an intellectual uh, a politician, very thoughtful. Um, and he and others who are running will help bring the entire field more in that direction. Right. Uh, but that's not, uh, that may not be enough to overcome, you know, some of these other, you know, more uh, uh, provocative, if not productive, approaches to just scare the hell out of people. Yeah, 
seems kind of fundamentally broken, but I guess are there, I, I suppose there are places, either different states or different nations that do things better than, than, than others. And it's, it's sort of a, sort of like a, a landscape where we can see that, you know, it, some points are higher than others and we want to try and move towards, even though you're, you're never going to get, you know, zero crime perfection, but there's just so many variables that it seems. Um, yeah. Well, and there's, thing. there's a lot of uh, uh, pretty well-funded national efforts to uh, move, to try to move the needle uh, right. toward a smart, more research-driven approaches. We've got a lot of private uh, foundations in the country that are helping fund that. The Arnold Foundation, based out of New York City and Texas, is one of the, the bigger ones. They spend hundreds of millions of dollars over years to try to improve the decision-making and the tools that people have in the justice system. I was part of a national project called the National Criminal Justice Reform Project, funded by the Arnold Foundation, that worked in five states, each of which determined what part of the justice system or parts of the justice system they wanted to improve. And then this funding provided technical assistance, including me and uh, others like uh, uh, Roger Shabilsky, a, a fellow that I work with, who's a criminal justice implementation scientist, you know, which is wow. quite a, That's a, cool quite a term, getting people to understand what really works. And, and you know, and, and you do that to kind of overcome what the politicians have done and said. Another project I was involved in that was funded by the Public Welfare Foundation out of Washington, D.C., that was very interesting, was that we in, became engaged with the political system to work with candidates for governor who I think the general rule was they had to be in single point digits uh, projected to win right. uh, and talk with them and work with their campaigns to say stuff that was smart on crime, tough but smart, mm -hmm. so that they didn't box themselves into the dumb stuff, but instead kind of box themselves into the smart stuff and then able uh, to fulfill those promises. We provided more technical assistance and deeper uh, education and technical assistance to be able to get them to follow through. Now that's, but that, you know, that's like a, you know, a very small effort. We ended up working with only several governors and had mixed uh, results. Um, but you see uh, national, like the sentencing project out of Washington, D.C., which is a great one. We can show that up on the screen uh, for, for folks or give them the, the information about that. But we recently, I worked with uh, Mark Maurer, who's the head of that, who's written some incredible books on the uh, injustice of uh, racial disparity in the justice system. And we just published a manuscript on looking at five states that have managed to reduce their prison population by double digits and have maintained that double digit reduction over some period of time. Mm -hmm. And what we see there is, in fact, multifaceted efforts kind of across the board uh, to, 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 to take that approach, except in one state, Michigan, um, where they took more of a single approach, which was to improve prisoner reentry, which is where I do most of my work. And that uh, had a dramatic impact on the reduction of the number of prisons and the cost of prisons and the length of time in prisons, et cetera, all more evidence-based. So there's a lot of stuff going on that moves the needle, uh, but it's, it's, it's a small uh, effort when you compare the, the hundreds of millions, the billions of dollars that are spent going in the other direction, you know, right. with negative campaigning. So the, in, in the U S the, the, you know, to use the, the term that you said, isn't really true. The criminal justice system is controlled at the state level almost entirely. Uh, there are federal crimes and federal prisons and things, but like the sort of stuff that we're talking about is managed at the state level. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. And, and is and, and not, not, not to, not to, uh, not to underscore, 
or not to underestimate on the local level too. So you've got local justice systems, right. police and courts and, you know, probation, parole, state agencies generally, but oftentimes they're actually could be run locally, but local and state is where most of the action is. Yeah. And who has the most power over stuff like that? Is it the, the state governors or state legislators? State governors have tremendous amount of uh, power and uh, particularly, uh, in the executive controlling so much of the system. I mean, if you're going to look at, as I mentioned earlier, upwards of 60% of the tax dollars that, that, that uh, local citizens pay is going to be for a mixture of state and local justice and corrections and law enforcement uh, components. And when you look at those that are most costly, you're looking at prisons. And uh, it may be like in, in Michigan, for example, I don't know what the overall cost of the systems are. We could, we could uh, you know, figure that. But the, the prison system and the probation parole systems here cost over $2 billion a year. The governor controls that. The legislature controls the purse. And that's where politics comes into play. I would say that uh, governors are less uh, uh, susceptible to uh, politics only during about four years of a typical eight-year term. Right. They're able to be smart on crime. If they're smart on crime when they run, they're able to be smart, smarter on crime the first two years they're in office before they start running again. Right. And then if they win again, they're smart for another two years before they become lame ducks. Right. And so you've got to understand when you're doing criminal justice reform, these political cycles. And the best window is to get in the door with somebody who's been governing. Uh, you want to get in the door if you can while they're running. Right. And take as many steps can. forward as you can before you start backsliding. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. So there's there's a lot of ways to have that impact. And the power of the purse is huge. I mean, there was a foundation uh, based out of New York City called the JET Foundation, J-E-H-T, Justice, Equity, Humane Treatment, I think was their acronym. And uh, they, uh, a very wealthy family uh, who uh, made their money uh, in uh, uh, Manhattan and in, the, in, the, in I think, more in a hotel and land and God only knows what. They had a lot of money. And they were committed to improving the justice system. Remarkable uh, dedication of purpose. And in Michigan, they were very, very closely uh, responsible for the reforms that we did here because they put millions of dollars into it. And it helped the governor who wanted to do the reforms be able to do those reforms in a way which was cost effective because she had to spend less state money to do it. And they basically provided the seed money hmm. that created the capabilities that we needed to reduce the size of the prison population. And then once we started saving the money, we could invest some of the savings into doing greater reforms. And it was a remarkable private uh, public partnership. Nice. Bernie Madoff uh, was their financial advisor. And when Bernie made off with their money, uh -huh. uh, they lost, you know, uh, don't quote me, but I think well over $200 million. Right. And so the foundation closed. In fact, I got a call from the foundation after we had just received a check for, I think it was a million dollars. And they said, did you cash that check? Please don't. <laughs> uh, please don't. And, it, you know, because this is what's happened. And it was, you know, it, it, was wow. a, it was a nightmare, you know, more for them than for us. But later uh, I met uh, the young couple uh, who were anonymous all through the time that we were using their money. Uh -huh. And we took them into a prison system where the reforms that they had paid for and helped support were in That's place. Nice. And we had a remarkable exchange with them. It was very emotional and moving because they could see right. the results of what they had done. And they talked with prisoners who were there who were 
talking about their appreciation of what we were doing to help improve their individual cool. chances for success post-release. And that's how you reduce crime rates in a large scale is that you do better individual planning and you do that 100 times, 1,000 times, and you, you will uh, have a positive impact on crime if you do that. We proved that in Michigan, a place that did more, uh, a little bit less across the board approaches, scattershot approaches are more dedicated to one thing. So there's a lot to unpack there too. Yeah. So, I mean, this, um, my mind is seeing similarities with like climate change, for example, where we've got really solid science, but politics is capable of just totally ignoring the, the science and doing the wrong thing. Um, so like you would think that if you have a proven methodology to reduce crime, that you could just cookie cutter that around everywhere. And, uh, you know, and we'd all, you know, the tide would raise all our ships, but apparently it's harder to, to do that. Or do people in all the States realize, read the, the literature and understand those, that those things are better and are just unable to convince the people in charge to do that? Or what's, well, so the, my experience, I've worked in you know, 12, 14 states and examined these issues. And what you see everywhere is some real successes and some really thoughtful approaches. Uh, they may be urban-based, city-based. Mayors have a big uh, hand in this. We've seen some remarkable uh, things happen out of a lot of major cities. If you want to examine you know, a, a city that has been uh, addressing justice issues in some unique ways over a long history, Chicago, uh, Illinois, um, in a state where... Uh, like many states, the people that are in the prison system uh, are largely those that are committing crimes or living in urban centers. Right. It's the case across the board. Uh, crime and justice issues are largely urban based. And in Illinois, back in the day, it's not so much the case now. Upwards of 60, 70 percent of everybody who is in prison came from and returned back to Chicago. So if you wanted to uh, resolve state level issues, you better resolve what's happening in Chicago. Uh, same in Michigan to a lesser extent, Detroit, right. where when I was uh, working in the Department of Corrections here, about 44 percent of everybody who was in prison returned to the city of Detroit. So if you want to help resolve state issues, you got to work with urban centers. And so mm -hmm. you see a lot of approaches in a lot of different places. So one jurisdiction may be doing some great stuff on bail reform. Others may be doing stuff on services within jail, uh, pretrial services. Others may be doing reforms on on sentencing and working with the judiciary in creative ways, others working with creative probation or parole programs, other prison systems doing things. The challenge is, is that they're doing small things, and it's very difficult to spread those and to make them larger. Right. And that makes the justice system like any system. I've, I've looked at corollaries, uh, again, with the educational system and the justice system, where you can go into a classroom that has you know, received some funding to do some special work with students in a special way, it's remarkable what they've been able to achieve and the cost per student is you know, several thousand dollars. Well, when you try to replicate that in a larger group, you start to fail because the replication is difficult, the amount of funding is difficult. And anytime you take a successful small program and try to right. make it larger- Some things it, don't scale it, well. They don't scale well and there's, there's a couple of things to consider. One is you know, expanding them in other jurisdictions and perhaps doing it in a pilot or demonst demonstration way. Right. Um, but then there's uh, taking it up to scale, meaning, well, so we were able to replicate it from one urban center to another urban center. And we're very successful with the first 50 or 100 people that we served, but we're, we really have thousands of people, and then you have to take it up to scale. That requires a tremendous amount of money, leadership, long-term support, and 
government support is often not long term. You get federal support. It's two or three years. You get philanthropy support foundations. They don't fund you forever. You've right. got to make remarkable system changes and put those changes into statute. And if you put them into statute, guess who's involved? Right. Politicians who talked about being tough on crime. And that's where you get into difficulty. Well, it also seems like it might be one reason that it might be hard to scale a small thing up to a, up to a bigger audience is uh, it might it might be hard to find the actual causal thing that is making the small program work. Like maybe the person in charge is just extremely charismatic or empathetic or whatever, and that person can write down all of the procedures that they're doing and you can give it to another person and they can try and repeat exactly yeah. what they've done. But if they aren't giving off that, you know, undescribable social vibe that's, that is hard to replicate, then it's not going to work in the next, in the next setting. So wow. to, to really prove that something works, you've got to replicate it a whole bunch of times. I would imagine. Well, and in fact, the research uh, proves exactly what you've said that when you have a, a program that is run, uh, largely through the you know the charisma, if you will, of, right. of a leader uh -huh. who is able to draw the money and draw the administrative and operation staff that are dedicated and you know to the person um, that those programs uh, that are successful have a much harder time to sure. be replicated. And in fact, there's some 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 would conclude that that having programs that have that characteristic of being led by a charismatic leader is not the way to go. But more to the point is you have to be then particularly careful about replication. And it is, in fact, about exactly what you've said, mm -hmm. writing it down, policies, procedure, protocols, who does what, when. And, and then when you replicate it, following that, you know, I in, in the work that I do, I talk about, you know, the difficulty of implementation uh, and use the analogy of a stream that starts at a spring at the top of a mountain. And, and if implementation is the the gravity-induced downward movement of that stream. The stream isn't go straight down a mountain. It hits barriers along the way, and if those barriers, like a you know a, a, a you know a bunch of logs and stones in a particular path, the water will pool, and then at some point the water will either flow over the top, it'll break through the log jam, or it'll go around it. Implementation is like that. You can have pretty significant barriers, and you have to decide what do I have to do to keep continuing you know, down the path, if you will, of success. And if you change the model significantly to overcome that barrier, you can eliminate the cause and effect that was there. Right. Uh, also to that point, uh, just to add, is that when you're doing broad-based system change, using Michigan as an example again, there were 50 things we were doing differently to try to improve the, the post-prison reentry system. Right. And researchers said, well, which, which of these 50 things is responsible? Well, yep. I, I, I don't know. Yep. It isn't just one thing. It's the interaction of thing. And it, it's, not, it's, not, well, it's not ethical to say, all right, we're, we're, only, we're, going to, we're, not, we're going to keep everything constant and only try and do one thing. Because if you could be doing 50 things, you sort of want to. But that, that's not – like the social sciences has that problem with, with, um, with proving things scientifically is that you, you can't – it's not ethical to, uh, to only attempt one thing at a time and see if it works because well and, and it, yeah and, and and these these approaches these one things at a time that they do are not often uh started with the end game in mind with some uh, input in terms of what a process or impact evaluation would look like and so instead you end up with uh leadership perhaps charismatic perhaps less so 
I, I talk about the different types of leadership you need to be successful, particularly at the state level. You need that charismatic political leadership from a governor, but you also need administrative leadership from the Department of Corrections, uh, high level, uh, you know, at the director or secretary level. And then you need uh, operational leadership and people that are smart and can, you know, write it all down. They're going to do a bunch of different things. Research may come in later and say, wow, you've had some successes. Now let's measure which of them had a greater impact. And they try to break it down. And, you know, I remember having a conversation saying, you know, frankly, you got to understand this, you know, working with some research department, I think it was the uh, University of Michigan. Uh, and, and I said to them, you know, I, I frankly, I got to be clear, I don't care. I, I don't I don't care uh, to know and to take the time and the money to figure out which of these, because we're we're reducing the number of people that are failing coming back to prison by 36 percent. I'm not going to, you know. Right. Try to tear that apart. It's very difficult to evaluate system change. Sure. Much researchers say, well, what program was it? You know, was it the apprenticeship program? Was it the family reunification program? Was it the uh, fathers of incarcerated, uh, you know, uh, the children of incarcerated fathers program? Yeah. And it's like, well, no, I don't know. Yeah. It's like all of those things. And it's working. So it's your job to try to unravel that and figure that out. It becomes very complicated. Sure. Uh, and then. And then it, it, it can end as, as quickly as it starts. You lose that uh, political, gubernatorial, charismatic, if you will, leadership when there's an election change. Right. Happens all the time. New governor comes in. A program uh, that has been successful is associated with the former governor. That former governor is from a different political party. New broom sweeps clean. Uh, you know, we're going to end this soft on crime thing. And, you know, and, you know the, the data uh, be damned. You know, we had a, a change of uh, leadership here from Democratic Party, uh, Jennifer Granholm to Republican Party, and uh, uh, new governor uh, came in, a businessman, and he was very clear that the data was good, and therefore don't change it. Yeah. Uh, and there was a bit of a, you know, a flap about that when they hired a new uh, corrections director, and the new corrections director was a sheriff, tough guy, and, you know, at his, you know, first press conference here, you know, started talking trash about the reentry program. And, the, you know, and it, it the, the rumor was the governor pulled him aside and said, look, I'm I'm a metrics and measures guy. Don't 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 say that this thing is working. I, nice. You know, be careful. And well, but then he killed it over time, you know, death by a thousand wounds, right, right, right. you know. And, and so slowly but surely, one of the primary ingredients of effective uh, prisoner reentry reform is, you know, full community ownership and engagement at the local level. So the state is a partner with with the communities from where prisoners came and to where they're returning. And that is not a common uh, state departments of correction want to run it and they're in control of it. And so when you're running a department of corrections, you may say, wow, this is messy. Having all this input at the local level and slowly but surely that deteriorates. They start getting less authority on how to spend the money. And that's where most of the change and most of the impact is going to happen post release. And, and so. It's there's a whole dynamic there that I could uh, talk you know for hours about, uh, but it's it's the way that once again, the political system, be that you know big P politics and people running for office change it, or small P politics where you've got the politics of a corrections secretary, or a corrections director who's a former elected official, sheriff, he is being pushed by sheriffs associations who tend to be of course on the law enforcement spectrum tougher than for example a public defenders association, right. and they are beholden. And, you know, uh, and, and it's all about money, you know, a large of it, you know, a good part of it. How do the sheriffs get more funding to do what they want to do? And is that stuff more effective than what we're trying to do over here? It's mm -hmm. complicated. 
it, I may have mentioned to you that the whole improvement of a justice system is sort of like trying to capture uh, jello with chicken wire. And uh, there's a fellow in Michigan who uh, did our prison population uh, projections. His name was Jeff Anderson. And that's an analogy he used to explain at a legislative hearing and to, to, to the director of corrections how difficult it was to try to predict how large of a prison pop population we'd have in future years because you squeeze the the chicken wire in one part and the, yeah. the jello squeezed out in another part. And it's all very interactive. And that's a, that's a great analogy for the justice system as a whole. And so this report that we put out the sensing project, five states that uh, reduced uh, incarceration in their prison populations looked at those multiple, multiple facets and right. what they did to try to control, you know, the chicken wire impact, if you will. And a lot of it, you know, gets down to what I'm saying about political, administrative, charismatic operational leadership. Wow, yeah, we've got uh, lots of different paths we can take here. So, what's like name one particular uh, program? I mean, this is what what you said you you didn't want to do before, but like, is there any program that you're that you're positive could be could be done anywhere and would you know re reduce crime? Like, sure, sure. And it, it's it, and it's clear. And there's pockets of this all over the country. There's good evidence. And it has to do with preparing uh, prisoners for employment uh, and then working with the business community for uh, employment uh, that uh, understands a couple of dynamics that the uh, research shows. You know, number one, that whatever you do uh, to improve uh, prisoner outcomes, you need to start it when they're in prison, but you need to continue it and do most of it post-release. So a general ratio that, that I use that the research supports is that if you've got 100% of something of a program that you want to do, do about 30% of it inside and then 70% of it outside. And I can point to different places that are doing a good job inside, but a poor job outside or a poor job inside, a better job outside. But when you pull that together in a more cohesive approach mm -hmm. and you focus on what the research says is that while they're in prison, teach them the soft skills of what it means to be a good employee. And if you're going to teach the hard skills, technical skills, that particular employers need only teach those skills at the request of and at the guidance of those businesses that are committed to hiring. So if you're going to train in welding pre-release while they're still in prison, mm -hmm. make sure that the well the way that you're teaching welding is the way that the people that are going to hire welders want it done because there's not just one way to weld. Right, right. You know, different equipment that you use, different skills, different approaches, et cetera. And that's true with everything. So there are elements of effective pre-employment, employability, employment programs that when you put it all together uh, can be very successful. We're working on a, a project in uh, Louisiana, uh, southeast Louisiana in Jefferson, St. Tammany and Orleans Parish called Ready for Work. And that is uh, business driven. We have an advisory council made up of business people. We're looking at all the research. We're creating a program design where the uh, businesses that are interested in hiring people will drive the way that we do pre-release pre-employability and employment, and it's a, it's, a, it's a very good program approach, and it's still in the design stage, which takes a long time uh, to be able to design it, but we're very hopeful about it, and we're drawing from research that we've seen in effective programs that have done some of the components well, all of the components well, in a small scale, Right. you know, and then trying to replicate that, see how that works in, you know, one, two, then, then three parishes, and working in a community where you've got... Uh, an incredibly high proportion of the population, the free world population, have been in prison mm -hmm. uh, or been in justice involved. 
and there's studies that, that show the remarkable uh, uh, data that what you have to overcome. So in some neighborhoods, uh, you may see that, you know, 50% or more of everybody who lives in a neighborhood has been involved in the justice system, perhaps even, you know, with a felony conviction record. Right. And because of that felony conviction record, very hard to find a job, very hard to find housing. And when you think about then, you know, here we go again with the, you know, the chicken wire thing, right, is that you can't just focus on jobs. You also have to focus on housing and you can't just focus on housing and jobs. You also got to attend the fact that a lot of these guys that, have, that are that are returning to prison again and again, those that are highest risk of recidivating, moderate to high risk of recidivating, they also have co-occurring uh, mental health and substance abuse issues. Right. You've got to address that. You've got to take a holistic approach. Well, you know, what's more important, a job or housing? You know, well, the answer is they're both important. So and you've got to. So it's difficult. Uh, I have a question. What sort of time frame do you need to to look at? You know, once you decide, all right, we're going to we're going to implement this this idea. How long does it take before you can feel confident in whether or not that worked or not? Because is it, it's got to be several years, right? Oh, it's years. It's years. But but the, 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 the it gets down to a lot of interrelated things. Now, we've already talked about charismatic leadership, administrative leadership, operational leadership. Let's say you have those. And let's say as a result of having those, you have funding. And as a result of that funding, you can do a pretty good plan, right? So looking at the, the Ready for Work project as an example in, in southeastern Louisiana, you have the support of the United Way of southeast Louisiana. Michael Williamson, the director of that agency, is just very charismatic and leading this thing from a philanthropic standpoint. You've got good leadership uh, there uh, with, uh, you know, more or less good competency in the Department of Corrections, depending on, you know, where you're looking, but you've got some of the right ingredients there. You've got good leadership in the in the in the business community, but you don't have that much funding, so it's going to take longer to plan it. Mm -hmm. And then you plan it, and then you propose it, and let's say it's funded. Then when you fund it, you're going to work with small numbers. Now, if you want to study the impact on recidivism, meaning recidivism being uh, another criminal conviction or another or a return to prison, it takes longer to be able to do that. There's a way to study the group of people that you're working with and compare them to a group in prior years mm -hmm. it's called the time to failure analysis where you can say you know what it's not cause and effect but this first group of 100 that we work with they return to prison in the first uh, year and a half or first year or even in the first several months at a rate which is much smaller than a group that looked just like them from five years prior right. so we're in the right track we're in the right direction or we're not if we're not let's adjust the program and then try it again. And then you can compare a cohort or a group with another cohort, another group, and you constantly interact with um, right. your design. And you're always asking this question, uh, what did we do as, the, as the, the, the water of implementation was running downhill and we reached a particular barrier because we watered down, uh, you know, the approach and that cost us some fidelity. You know, Roger Shabilsky, who I work with, always talks about fidelity. Mm -hmm. You know, like like uh, his um, growing up, he had a stereo system that was high fidelity. Well, what did that mean? Right. That meant that when you're in the room listening to it, it sounded a lot more like it did if you were in the room where the orchestra, or the band was playing. Right. Well, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to replicate with high fidelity, but it's very tough. So the, the short answer, which I'm incapable of providing, is that it takes many years. And when we're working in a state that wants to do long term reform, we want them to really hunker down and understand this is a five or 10 year commitment. And you've got to do that. At the at the workable moment, while you've got that that that, that cadre of uh, charismatic administrative operational leadership, so that you can prove impact in a quick enough time frame, 
and put that stuff that you're doing into writing, into policy and procedure, if not statute, so that you're better able to uh, uh, to ameliorate the potential impact of politicians coming in and, and changing it. And so there's it, it's a it's it, it's it's a it's a longer term process. But you if you get in a state at the right time, you've got that time. If, if you don't, then you don't. Right. And it becomes more difficult. Have you. Do you have experience attempting to implement something? And I mean, for sure, there have been failures where you don't see any change. Uh, but have you ever had have you ever tried to implement something and then actually crime went up as a result of, you know, compared to. A, a control group that oh sure yeah oh sure oh sure and uh i, I just was uh, uh telling the story the other day in fact it was funny I, I told you the other day i was uh i had a, a laceration and i had to go to the hospital for emergency surgery and yeah. i was numbed my arm was numbed and so i was able to to talk and the, one of the attendants in the operating room uh had a, a son who'd been involved in the justice system went into top talking about criminal justice reform and he mentioned scared straight which was a educational program for juveniles that uh, was put into motion. And you would take these juveniles and you take them into a prison and, right. you, you know, interact with, you know, hardened criminals. And the idea was you'd scare the hell out of them. Right. Well, the study showed that that had a, a negative impact, meaning that the kids that were involved ended up more likely to engage in criminal activity. And they ended up, the researchers call it the Al Capone effect where they would meet a guy and they were, you know, impressed with, you know, the tough guy right. kind of approach. And, you know, I want to be like that. Nice. And, uh, and that didn't stop scared straight, you know, because your gut would tell you, wow, yeah. uh, you know, that makes sense. And it's, it's what we would call sexy. People understand it. They would do films, you yeah. know, the documentaries. And it's like, you know, no, don't do that. <laughs> and the, the, the other, and I'll get into the weeds here a bit, but, and, and Roger talks a lot about this, this implementation science is that in order for these programs to be effective, you got to work with the right people that are most responsible for for, for recidivating. And right. those those people are the ones that you really find more difficult to work with because they tend to be the non-compliant, non-responsive. Right. Oh, guess what? Antisocial behavior. Oh, guess what? Antisocial peers. Uh-huh. Criminal thinking. Right, right? Right, right. Those characteristics, which make it much more difficult. We'd much rather work with the guys that are easy to work with who show up on time, you know, are sure. polite. And if you're a nonprofit program in the community, those are the people who are knocking on your door looking for services. And so you're working with the lower risk people and you say, and they they see this all the time, only 3% of the people we work with return to prison. Okay, well, when you do a control group, what percentage of them? And the answer could be 2%. Yeah. Why? Because when you pick a low risk person, you put them in a program where they got to jump through hoops. I got to do community service. I got to pass a urine test, a frequent urine test. Yeah. They fail to jump through those hoops. If you would have just left them alone, they wouldn't have had to do those things. And so right. you turn you turn it on its head. And and there is a paper that was written. I've got a dog-eared copy uh, near me called the, the, the Unmet Promise of Alternatives to Incarceration, written uh, by Kay Harris and Alan Harlan from Temple University in Philadelphia, Kay Harris just uh, passed uh, this past year at the the ripe age of 80-something. She was my hero. Wow. Her and uh, Alan uh, just changed the trajectory of my career when I, when I read this and followed them and then became colleagues of theirs. But it was about this. And so you can have a good design and work with the wrong person. And when you're a reformist or an advocate and you found your, your, your niche where you've got some funding for a program and you're working with a population, you've got good stats, you don't want to hear it. 
you also don't want to change it. So it's not just about the politicians and it's not just about the state agencies. Oh, yeah. You have the same kind of politics and nonprofits where they're fighting for dollars and maybe they've worked for 10, 15 years to 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 create a, a you know a sense of authority and accomplishment. And if you go and talk with them and say, well, it's great you're doing this good work. And if your goal is to help a lot of people, you've met that goal. But if your goal is, as you say, to reduce the impact of crime in the community, you're actually not doing that great of a job with that. So do you want to learn evidence-based practices? And if you do, are you willing to do less with the people who are knocking on your door, who are mm-hmm. uh, you know more compliant, who are lower risk, and do more with the, the people who are uh, less compliant or are higher risk? They're like, holy cow, I, 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 my case managers don't want to do that. I mean, if you're a parole officer, who do you want in your caseload? Right. Exactly. You know, and so these things work against it. And so it, it, it gets back to the to the idea, your, your question here of do you see programs, uh, you know, what the research shows that it actually, you know, hurts things? Mm-hmm. Yes, all the time. In fact, that's one of the reasons that, you know, there's a national project called the Justice Reinvestment Initiative, JRI, you know, very heavily funded by Pew Charitable Trust. And they've done some remarkable work in 24 or 25 states to change legislation that, you know, changes, you know, length of term for some, lengthens length of term for others, because they're creating, it's a political process. You've got to get the support of prosecutors and sheriffs. They've got to be tougher in some areas, but they think that success is that they pass laws and that the laws, you know, and and that's not, that's not how you measure success. It's an implementation. So how is the, how would you rate the the breakdown of, of, of programs? Like do most programs help or do most hurt or do most uh, have no effect? Or most have the, no effect or hurt. Most have no effect or hurt. There's just a very few that actually yeah. is, and that's because oh, that's because of these that's because of these biases that you were mentioning about yeah. um, picking the 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 low fruit that was gonna that wasn't well, gonna it, be. It, it, yes, that's right. That's right. And right. it's a continuum, though. But and, and so the continuum would be if you're a smaller program, right. that you have a higher chance of success if you're well designed, right. and you have those those levels of leadership. But the more you move up the scale to larger scale programs, particularly when you see the adaptation of successful pilots or demonstrations trying to be brought up to scale, you see a whole lot less success there. You imagine that if you have, you know, a stream, uh, you know, from the spring at the top of the mountain, trying to get that stream to overcome those barriers is easier compared to a raging river where it's dangerous to even get in those waters. Right. (laughs) You know, it's analogy, you know, uh, take shape. Um, and, and, and so it's, it's a remarkable conundrum. Uh, it's some very exciting stuff and I never want to, you know, uh, undersell or underestimate the, the, the power of, of the enormous number of great things that are going on in different pockets. Uh, but, uh, I, I can't, uh, overestimate the challenge of taking those small things and sure. turning them into large scale efforts. Our paper, uh, that I mentioned a couple of times does that to a certain extent, um, from the sensing project. All right, I've got one last question. Um, how do you feel about felon voting laws? Oh, it's huge. It's huge. That's, that's, and, really, um, that's, you're, that's huge. That's really important that felons yes, be able to vote? Yes, it's very, 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 very important. And, you know, you, you talked earlier about, you know, to what degree do we need to educate the public in political sense? And right. you could take that, you know, and apply it just to the criminal justice system and look at the mess. And, and, and one of the facts is, is that when you punish someone by sending them to prison, whether you're doing that for specific deterrence or general deterrence or, you, you know, you, you're doing it just on a, on a retribution uh, uh, purposes, 
people continue to be punished. And a judge who I, I wish I remember who said this, he said, when you take a person, put them in prison and you ship them off to a prison that's 10, 12 hours away from their home and they separate from their family uh, and you do that for years, you're 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 giving them a life sentence. Right. Because they will never overcome uh, what's happened. So you get out of prison and you now have a felony record. Let's say you've been in prison a couple of times. You end up, you know, tatted up. Uh, you don't look good. You know, you haven't had a good uh, record. You don't have, you know, good, uh, good assistance. No relationships very, very, with, with people right, outside. Right. So wh- what do you do? You, you know, you form associations and to over overcome that. And so in Louisiana, there's a great organization called Vote, the voice of the it used to be called the voice of the ex-offender. Mm-hmm. Uh, they changed that acronym uh, to the voice of the experienced. Uh, and it's led uh, charismatic uh, leader. Um, and they focus on this, uh, you know, very heavily. I wouldn't say exclusively, but it's that power. Um, and in Florida recently, they just changed the laws. You've got millions of people, right. millions of people that are able to vote. In Michigan, we started an organization uh, when I was a director of an organization called the Michigan Council on Crime and Delinquency. And we fostered an association within that organization called Nation Outside, developed and run by formerly incarcerated persons or FIPS, you know, in the shorthand term, and uh, our uh, bylaws, et cetera, you know, put control of the organization in the hands of people that have been in and out of the state prison system. And they're focusing on that as well. And know this, when you look at a state that has got not just, you know, every year they have 10,000 people released from prison over the course of 10 years, then that's 100,000 people. And you look at their impact on their families and Let's say every person of the hundred thousand over ten years that has got you know uh, two or three family members, and you got three hundred thousand. Well, look at the difference in the victor and the loser in a gubernatorial race. Right, it's one percent. Yeah. It's two percent. It's three percent. The power of this is that those folks, if they're well organized, have the power to change the outcome of an election. It's one of the reasons that scares the bejesus out of Republicans, because the research will tell you that right. most of the people that are in or out of prison are Democrats. The Republicans will tell you, well, that makes sense because most of the Democrats are crooks, right? <laughs> but it's actually more on the on the scale of, you know, liberalism and social assistance, right. where you've got people that are uh, in the political spectrum are more geared toward uh, helping on the social end of things. And that tends to be more liberal folks. And that's why they, they vote for that. And uh, it's going to change the trajectory with the the new uh, political wave of activism and the liberal side of things on the left in, in the United States right now, uh, you know, and we can thank Donald Trump for that. Uh, right. And I don't thank him very much and I don't thank him about much of anything. Uh, but uh, he is, in fact, the reason that we're seeing a resurgence, unlike anything we've ever seen in this country, to get more voters involved. And many of the people are disenfranchised. And those folks are more on the lower end of the economic scale, which means that they very well may be persons of color, brown and black uh, uh, people who, because of both their economic disparity in the justice system and the racial disparity in the justice system, those are the ones that are most akin Mm -hmm. to what's happening. So it's no surprise that you see now a real effort at the national level here to pay attention to some justice reform. And Jared Kushner, no stranger you know, to the justice system since his father was in prison at the hands of prosecutor Chris Christie, Hmm. right? And he himself, you know, uh, may end up, you know, having some very individual experience in the prison system. Who knows? Um, He has has done a a good job of, you know, uh, focusing on some reform. And and, and so the the voting of disenfranchised persons, not just the former prisoners, but their families who also 
uh, have a tendency not to vote as well, and right. then take in the, the, the people who are, uh, you know, uh, the millennials, you know, who would be more prone to be sympathetic to this right. and more prone to understand the economics of it. You bring them into the mix, and we are uh, possibly moving toward uh, a new era of, uh, of, 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 of ending the era of mass incarceration, which is the whole subject of another talk. Well, that's a that's a positive note to end on, I think. Well, it's hard to be upbeat about the, the <laughs> ineffective justice system, but yeah, it's a good note to end on. Well, it's been great talking to you. Thank you for listening. The show notes for this episode, as well as all of our episodes, can be found on our website, seekjustice.fm. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please help us by telling a friend, sharing us on social media, or giving us a positive review in iTunes. That really helps others discover the show. If you'd like to get in contact with us to suggest topics you'd like us to cover, we can be reached on Twitter at SeekJusticeFM or by email to SeekJusticeFM at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.